friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ear. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm your host, Neil White, joined as always by my brother, David, and it's summer vacation time. David, how's it going? Well, I'm actually still in school for the summer, so it's much like non-summer vacation time for me, but nonetheless. But summer vacation or no, we still have a podcast to do. So, David, are you ready for the question that I always ask to start the podcast? Theoretically. We're back to our normal format after going a little off script for our 50th episode in the last one. So if you missed that, go back and check it out. It was a little bit different, a little bit special. But today, as always, oh brother, when art thou? Neil, there's a critical election coming up. People are angry. The wars that several decades ago started in a fervor of righteous anger have become a long drag on the Republic, but at the same time, what's really driving the tension in the streets is dramatic economic inequality coupled with what are viewed as an incredibly out-of-touch and incompetent leadership, and perhaps most of all, a governing party that is viewed as willing to use the most underhanded tactics in the book, willing to violate every principle and use the veto and every everything they can in order to cling desperately to the power that they hold. The year that you're thinking of, of course, is 367 BC in ancient Rome. Well, David, I'm sure folks could come up with quite a few years this actually applies to. It's funny how history seems to repeat itself, and that sort of situation seems to sound familiar. But take us back to 367 BC. Who's in charge and not doing such a great job of running the Republic? So, 367 BC. This is sort of before the Rome we usually think of. We usually think of the Roman Empire the emperors and that whole thing. But this is pre-empire. Rome is a republic, and it's a republic ruled by the patricians, the rich nobles of the Roman populace. But they're not the majority. I mean, it sort of comes with the name patricians, rich, noble, elite. Of course, most people don't get to be in that category. So the bulk of the populace of Rome are known as the plebeians. And unsurprisingly, they have for centuries felt left out, locked out of the levers of power. But the plebeians have one element of political power all of their very own. Every year, they get to elect two tribunes of the people, two elected officials who have a specific powerful role in the Roman constitution. They have the power of veto. They can prevent 
anyone else who has been elected from taking his seat and doing the job that he's elected for, which in turn means that the holders of every other seat under the Roman Constitution, who are all patricians at this point in history, by the way, must nonetheless pay some attention to plebeian issues. But at this point, 367 BC, it's been 10 years, 10 years, and the system has failed dramatically. And it's failed because the patrician party that got into power in the Roman Senate refused to compromise with the elected tribunes. And the tribunes, in turn, have exercised their veto power on everything they can veto. And for a decade, Roman government has been operating under irregular emergency measures with no end in sight. And that's why this particular election, things are reaching fever pitch. This state of affairs can't go on, and both sides view their opponents as the source of the problem. So it's a real constitutional crisis here, David. The vetoes on everything means that the system isn't working the way it should be. They're using emergency powers to try and run it. Now, the best solution usually to a constitutional crisis like this would be for an election and to kind of reset the system with the will of the people. So how is this election going to play out? So again, things are influenced and driven by the pre-existing conditions. So there are two significant leaders amongst the plebeians. They've been elected tribunes the most of anyone in these 10 years. Indeed, there's only one period when either of them has not been tribune, and that was specifically an effort at compromise with the patricians. Their names are Lucius Sextius Laternus and Gaius Licinius Stolo, and they have proposed three laws which they feel will dramatically change the situation of the plebeians in Rome for the better. And their promise is that if their three laws are passed by the Senate, they won't apply the veto not only to those three laws, obviously, but also to a wide element of further legislation that the Senate might wish to pass. But even with that promise that all the Senate will need to do is pass three pieces of legislation, that legislation is so controversial that there's a significant group amongst the patricians who are opposed to even passing the bills and are looking for alternatives to compromise. It does sound similar to a lot of political situations we see today, David. We have this bill put forward that could be the solution, but of course it has to get past the majority of the Senate. Can you explain what these three laws are that the tribunes would like to pass? The first one, there are consuls at the top of the Roman political system. I don't want to break down the entirety of how it works, but they're the most powerful elected figures 
in Rome. There's two of them at any given time. And the tribunes propose that one of the consuls should be a plebeian and the other one can be a patrician. So it would sort of split up the power of the consulate. So that one on its own is a big ask. The second law that they've proposed is a restriction on individual ownership of land intended to limit the giant estates that some of the very wealthiest of the patricians have managed to gather together as an effort to do something about the crazy economic inequality that's viewed as such a problem at this time by the plebeians. Sounds familiar. And the third one is a law about debts. It is, to our ears, not a dramatic law. It just wants to limit the interest that can be charged and set rules about how to pay down the principal and ensure that everyone is covered fairly. But in some ways, this is the most controversial of all three of the laws because most of the wealthiest of the patricians work in money lending as one of their biggest sources of wealth. And conversely, many plebeians, the bitterest problem that they feel is the exceptional stress laid upon farmers who frequently need to take out loans at the start of the agricultural season when moneylenders have so much political and legal power to try and enforce very aggressive punishments for failure to pay. David, the similarities between this and the current situation in many places in the world, not to mention situations that have happened throughout history, is just quite astonishing. There's parallels all over the place. So now we've got this package of bills before the Senate that could solve the problem, but the Senate really doesn't want to pass it. Are there other options available here to the patricians? What are they considering? So the first thing that the patricians are doing is what they have been doing for a decade, which is waiting for the election and hoping that they can put forward candidates, plebeian candidates, who can beat the tribunes of the plebes in the election and just stop doing vetoes, which would work out super well for the patricians, but electorally, the numbers just aren't there. So that is and has been pushing a dangerous radicalization of the patrician party who have been making increasing threats that if the tribunes re-elect their two most popular members again this year, there will be consequences. But of course, that kind of threat frequently causes the group being threatened, in this case the plebeians, not to back down, but instead to come together more ready to fight. All right, David, so now we've got some political polarization going on. How does the election unfold? Well, the election itself is your typical ancient election cavalcade of bribery and intimidation 
and there's violence in the streets, and it's dramatic, but ultimately none of it changes the outcome. The two tribunes of the people get reelected yet again. Once again, the patricians are out of luck, facing the veto, but this time they're not going to take it. It's been too long. Too many things have been shut down by this brutal shutdown of the Roman government. And the patricians are making a desperation play, pulling on one of the craziest to modern ears elements of the Roman constitution. The patricians announce that they're not just going to keep using the same old emergency powers that have been sustaining the Roman government for a decade. They're going to pull out the most emergency of emergency powers. They're going to appoint a dictator to personally run the Roman Republic for the next year. That does sound like a very emergency type of measure, David. And the type of thing that tends to not end well. Who is going to be their dictator to run the government? Well, if you're going to pick a dictator and get it past the Senate, which may be in the grips of a extremist patrician faction, but at the same time is not completely insane, he needs to be somebody with a positive reputation, at least amongst the elites. So... The guy they've chosen, a guy by the name of Marcus Furius Camillus, is the most successful Roman general then alive. They call him the second founder of Rome because he famously defeated the Gauls and drove them away when they were on the verge of capturing Rome itself. He is widely revered across the political spectrum, and he is deeply, deeply uncomfortable with suddenly being appointed dictator when he'd mostly been serving a military career and avoiding politics for the past decade, probably because he didn't want to get into the middle of this mess. Well, at least that sounds promising. A good good choice for a dictator is someone who doesn't want the power. How's it going to play out over his year that he now is running Rome? Well, the first year is very mysterious, actually. We don't have a lot of good historical sources stretching back this far into Roman history. He becomes the dictator... He pushes through a few more of the sort of emergency appointments that the Senate has been doing for the past decade. He announces that he wants to create a compromise between the plebeians and the patricians. That's predictably a disaster. It's not, there's not a whole ton of evidence as to what exactly happens, but it ends up. Okay, I now need to explain a bit of even more ancient Roman history before I can go back to explaining what happens to Marcus Furius. All right, give us some context here, David. 
So a hundred years, almost, before all of this went down, there was what was known as the secessio, the secession. And this was an event where the Roman army basically went on strike. Essentially, the Roman army, the plebeians of the army, not the patrician officers, announced that they would not serve because the plebeians were being treated so badly at the time. And that actually started the wave of reform that ended with the tribunes of the plebeians becoming an official position. So there's this accepted-ish story that no one likes to talk about in normal times because the army going on strike and everyone having to do what they want for fear of otherwise being overrun by external enemies doesn't make anyone sound heroic. But it's in the minds of some plebeian leaders as a potential effective tactic. And with Marcus Furius, who I've already said is one of Rome's most successful generals in this period, pulled off of the front lines. Do you remember back at the start, I mentioned that the wars were dragging on, that they'd started in a blaze of righteous fury, but now they're sort of becoming drawn out and tired? Right, of course. So that blaze of righteous fury that got Marcus Furius called the second founder of Rome when he drove the Gauls away from the gates before disaster. Well, that was dramatic, but it was decades ago. But the fighting never stopped. It just was driven farther north. But now, with Marcus Furius back in Rome, trying to negotiate some kind of compromise, and with the army dissatisfied and various plebeian leaders bringing up the memory of this army strike, desertions start happening. First it's a trickle, then it's a flood. It's nothing like the famous first secession. Probably the first secession is practically mythical. We don't have a lot of good sources. Probably it wasn't as clean and bloodless as it's portrayed in traditional accounts. But this second event, these soldiers' mutinies that are happening, are a disaster. The Gauls are suddenly driving south. The front lines are collapsing. Marcus Furius is incredibly unhappy with the complete failure to compromise on both parties that he's been dealing with in Rome. And he basically gives up. He goes back to the army, announcing that he needs to be there to take command to prevent disaster. And the government of Rome is now officially in the hands of a dictator who's basically not there, managing to spark yet another constitutional crisis. Oh, geez, David. It's got to be bad when you give complete power to one guy and he says no thanks and goes back to being a general. I mean, technically he hasn't given up on being a dictator, but he's just not there. He can't handle This was before smartphones, before the internet. He can't both be on the front lines commanding and running day-to-day kind of things in Rome. It just doesn't work. And so the system now is breaking down at an even more accelerated rate than it already was. The plebeians are unwilling to back down. They still feel that their grievances were just, 
And as the war expands and more plebeians are on the front lines fighting as soldiers, their demands suddenly seem more reasonable to some of the moderates amongst the patricians. It's one thing to say that, you know, the plebeians are lazy and they just want these debt relief laws because they don't like paying things, you know. But it's harder to keep up that line when the plebeians you're talking about are the soldiers who are keeping the Gauls out of Rome and the most famous general alive who is also the dictator of Rome is sending back dispatches about how badly screwed up things are on the front line because of you idiots. So the Senate needs to uh, support the troops, so to speak, if they're going to compromise with the plebeians. David, is all of this chaos, you know, a dictator who doesn't want to be a dictator, mutinies in the army, desertions, all of this going to lead to a compromise? I mean, you could call it a compromise. Traditional history does actually refer to it as a compromise. It's sort of unusual in the way we think about compromises. It's not so much that the Senate and the tribunes get together and come to an agreement. It's more that Marcus Furius marches back to Rome with his army and announces that he's decided on a compromise. He has looked over the details of everyone's arguments. He's gathered his armies who are loyal to him, and he announces he thinks that the first law proposed by the tribunes goes too far. So that was the one to make one of the consuls one of the plebeians. Exactly. He feels that there's no need for a consul to be a plebeian, but he feels that the other two laws, which are actually more unpopular with the Senate, are fine. He's okay with those. He says, debt relief, yes. Most of my soldiers are also when they're back in Rome, debtors. They have big debts frequently because they've had to leave their farms to be soldiers. Clearly, debt relief is a good thing if you're a general. And uh, he doesn't really care about agricultural estates. He's a general. That's, you know, not really something he really worries about. So he's fine with that law, too. So those two laws, he announces, are getting passed. And the Senate can pass them or we can have new senators, and eventually someone will. So with that threat, he gets the two laws passed, at which point he turns to the tribunes and announces that the same applies. The tribunes can announce that they're satisfied and stop using the veto on absolutely everything, or he can get new tribunes. And the tribunes, again look at the very real possibility that he could just kill everyone with his army and decide that two out of three ain't bad and accept the compromise. And this leads to a dramatic new period in the Roman Republic as effective debt relief improves the conditions of agricultural workers, which bumps up agricultural productivity, which in turn affects the army, which is probably one of the factors that leads to rising population and effective militarization of Roman society. But that's not really what you're interested in. What are we really interested in? So, this whole thing. We've announced that we're forcing a compromise. There's going to be a compromise. It's going to be between the patricians and the plebeians. 
and they all love each other now, right? That's what the dictator has decreed. That's what's happening. But you're going to be shocked here. But actually, most people don't. Even though the compromise has gone down, even though your average plebeian is pretty happy that the laws have been passed, they still hate the patricians. The patricians still hate the plebeians. So Marcus Furius, before he resigns his dictatorship for good, has one last effort made to try and encourage compromise. He announces that they're going to build statues, temples, the whole deal, not to him, not to the tribunes or the patrician senate, to Romulus and Remus, the legendary founders of Rome who, you know, got raised by a wolf, that whole thing, who up until this point in the historical archaeological record, there are historians who seriously argue that maybe Marcus Furius made up the entire myth just to have a story about how working together is better than being split apart, which kind of is a moral you could take from the Romulus and Remus myth, because there's no good evidence for it existing, either in the literature or the architecture, until suddenly, 367 BC, Marcus Furius is throwing up statues and temples left and right, and making sure lots of people are writing down his version of that myth to try and convince people little PR razzle-dazzle, get the people together with the patricians. So a national myth, David, building up a national story to create some compromise and create a sense of togetherness so that maybe, maybe they can get past all of this politicking and all of this polarization in the politics of Rome. David, I think this story has a lot of applications throughout history and a lot of things that you can take from it. I mean, it's a story that feels like it should have a crisper moral than it does. They all sort of end up partially satisfied. Maybe the moral to take away is no one ever ends up 100% satisfied in life. But yeah, I do feel like there's lessons, even if they're not always obvious. And David, does Rome go back to being a republic? Uh, does Marcus Furius step down from this dictator role and actually get back to their um, sort of democracy for the day? Marcus Furius takes an extra year over his initial term to get this all done, including the myth-making, but he does actually step down eventually, and Rome goes back to their democracy in so much as it is one. And of course, nothing lasts forever, and the fall of the Roman Republic a hundred years later is famous and partially rooted in some of these conflicts, but that's sort of outside the scope of this podcast, which is already long enough. It certainly is, David. An interesting story, and uh, not often a story where you have a dictator relinquishing power like that, so kind of a happy ending for Rome in this case. For now. For now. All right, David, we always like to end with a quiz to wrap up the show with something fun. So, are you ready for a quiz? I am ready for a quiz, Neil. What do you got? We looked at the historical accuracy of movies in episode 11, The Philosophy Student and the Spartan Army. And in episode 46, The French Bandits and the Black Flag Army, we looked at the historical accuracy of television shows. But of course, the phenomenon that's sweeping all over the place these days, David, is the Broadway musical Hamilton, 
which you can now watch on Disney Plus. Lots of people have. Of course, it's about history. So I thought today we'd look at the historical accuracy of some Broadway shows. All right. And you're not allowed to ask our sister for help. Let's dance. So let's start with that Broadway show that's so popular these days, Hamilton. And there's a line that says that, quote, Martha Washington named a feral cat after him. And Lin-Manuel Miranda, the writer who also plays Hamilton, actually sings in the play, That's True. So the question is, is he right? Is that true? I trust Lin-Manuel Miranda, Neil. I'll say, sure, that's true. Well, there's a lot that's true in Hamilton, but we're going to give him a false on this one. The original source about Washington's cat being named after Hamilton is part of what was a very clearly satirical passage mocking the revolutionaries. So it really shouldn't be taken seriously. Let's go on to another famous musical, The Sound of Music. And in that, Captain Von Trapp and his family sing the song Edelweiss as a statement of Austrian patriotism in the face of the pressure put on him to join the Nazi Navy. Is it true or false that this song was in the repertoire of the real Von Trapp family? So Edelweiss sounds so much like a traditional patriotic song, but I happen to know that it actually was written for the Broadway musical, if I'm not misremembering drastically. You're right, David. The song was written by Roger and Hammerstein for the musical, but uh, lots of people have been fooled by it, including this bonus historical fact for you. Ronald Reagan, when he was president, and he was a big fan of the movie, he arranged for the song to be played for the Austrian ambassador because he apparently thought it was an Austrian anthem. Come From Away is based on September 11th, and in it, Pilot Beverly Bass sings that she was in, quote, 1986, the first female American captain in history. Suddenly, I'm in the cockpit. Suddenly, I've got my wings. Is that true or false? The first female American captain in history, 1986. That would be around the right time, I would think, if we're talking about captain of a full commercial airliner for American Airways. I'm really not sure, but I'll guess true. You're right, David. It is true. Beverly Bass is based on the real woman. She became American Airlines' first female captain and captain of the world's first all-female crew. And in fact, many of the lyrics in the song are almost verbatim from interviews she gave. All right, David. In Six, the musical, which is about the wives of Henry VIII, Anne of Cleves, one of the wives, sings, quote, When he saw my portrait, he was like, Yeah but I didn't look as a good as I did in my pick. True or false, did Anne of Cleves catfish Henry VIII, if we can use that term for the 16th century? Well, I doubt that she was in charge of arranging for the portrait sent to Henry VIII. I do believe that it's true that that is how they let foreign kings get a glance of a potential bride, and also that... I certainly believe it's quite possible that that happened, so I'll guess true. You're right, David. Hans Holbein painted Anne's portrait, and King Henry fell in love with it. They were engaged before they ever met, but apparently the king wasn't that interested in her when they met. He divorced her after just six months. Last question for you, David. In the musical Evita, based on the life of Maria Eva Duarte de Perón, the second wife of Argentine President Juan Perón, Shea sings to Augustin Magaldi, saying, quote, Why don't you be the man who discovered her? You'll never be remembered for your voice. 
true or false that Magaldi is best remembered as the man who discovered Evita? I am not down enough with Argentine history to know for sure, but true has been working for me so far, so I'll stick with it. This one's actually false, David. In reality, Magaldi was a great tango singer, among the very best in Argentina, and there's no record of Magaldi playing where she was around 1934 when he supposedly met Evita. So some historians believe that Evita actually made up her entire relationship with Magaldi just as a way of garnering a little bit of fame by being associated with this famous tango singer. Thanks for playing along, David. I always enjoy it, Neil. Be sure to follow us on social media at When Art Thou, and don't forget to rate and review the podcast wherever you're listening. We appreciate all of your support. Thanks for listening. Washington named her feral tomcat after him. That's true.